As we turn our attention to Leviticus 24, the very first consideration you need to have is a simple one. Why in the world does this chapter exist? And beyond existing, why is it here? I'm serious about that. When you read through this chapter, at first glance, the subject matter seems to be oddly out of place. Let me explain what I mean. In chapter 23 of Leviticus, the, the, the chapter we've been studying the last few weeks, God institutes in that chapter seven yearly festivals, feasts, designed to be times of celebration, times of rejoicing for the Hebrew people, the people of God. Then in chapter 25, which we'll get to in a few weeks, God expounds on these Sabbaths, not just the Sabbath day, but the entire concept. A concept about rest and relaxation, refreshing, carrying it beyond one day a week to the seventh year and beyond the seventh year to this 50th year. The year of Jubilee. My point is that thematically, as you're working your way through Leviticus, chapter 23 and chapter 25, all kind of dealing with rest and relaxation, taking a break from work, they all they align. Those two chapters kind of fit really well together, making it strange that God would break up the flow of Leviticus by inserting the subject matters of Leviticus 24, which again are oddly out of place. If you're a note taker, every scholar breaks down this chapter into three simple categories. And it's really not rocket science. The first four verses deal with the holy oil of the lampstand located in the tabernacle. Verses 5 through 9 address the holy bread, its positioning on the table of showbread, also located inside the tabernacle. The remainder of the chapter then centers on an interesting narrative, a story actually, dealing with the protection, the sanctity of God's name and what would result from blasphemy. Holy oil, holy bread, holy name. For our purposes, you can write down three words. Power, Provision and purity. So back to the original question. Why would God wedge these subjects in between two chapters dealing with festival celebrations and days of rest? The answer isn't provided in Leviticus, but rather in Deuteronomy. Chapter 16, verses 16 and 17. In these verses, we read the following. God says three times a year. All your males shall appear before the Lord your God in the place where he chooses. So this is kind of a greater elaboration of these seven festivals, pinpointing which of these seven festivals were required attendance. So every male, these three, the Feast of Unleavened Bread, which, if you recall, also included Passover, as well as the Feast of First Fruits. So they were all kind of together in the spring. Then the Feast of Weeks, that was 50 days later, the Feast of Pentecost. And the third was the Feast of Tabernacles, the last of the fall festivals. But let me read what continues. God says, so these three you need to come to. They're mandatory. And they, speaking of the men that should come, shall not appear before the Lord empty-handed. Every male shall, be, shall give as he is able, according to the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given to you. Now, don't miss that interesting detail. Not only were these three festivals mandatory, three feasts aimed at commemorating a past work, 
celebrating a present work, anticipating a future work, but their timing coinciding with the barley harvest in the spring, the wheat harvest before summer, the olive and grape harvests in the fall, their timing intended to provide practically ample supplies to support the work of the tabernacle and the work of the priesthood, the Levites. God's clear in our text that he told the people, every male shall appear before the Lord during these three feasts, but every man should not appear at these times empty-handed. The Hebrew word we have empty can be translated as vainly or without gift, without offering. You see, in their celebration of God's faithful provisions, the blessing of the Lord your God, which he has given, right? God had given their increase. God had given the blessing. So in their celebration of God's faithfulness to provide, there was to be a practical response. Specifically, according to God's blessings, every man was to give as he was able. As we're going to see this morning, sandwiched between two chapters that celebrated God's past, present, and future work during these sanctified parties and His continued blessing in the observance of the Sabbaths, chapter 24, it focuses on what should result in our lives when we respond to His grace and goodness. How we respond, our gift to God in response to all that He's given us. That's why the chapter's here. Christian, friend, brother and sister, when you're moved by God's grace, like when you get it, when it hits you, all that God has done for you, free of attachment, according to the abundance of that blessing, three things should result in your life and by extension should result in the life of a church. When you respond to God's grace, there should be oil for illumination. Power for the ministry. There should be bread for continuation or provisions for the ministry. And ultimately, an, ob an obedience should exist for conservation or purity in the ministry. Again, if you're a note taker, oil, bread, obedience. Illumination, continuation, conservation. Power, provisions, and purity. Let's dive into the text, Leviticus 24, beginning with verse 1. Then the Lord spoke to Moses, saying, Command the children of Israel that they bring to you pure oil of pressed olives for the light, to make the lamps burn continually. Outside the veil of the testimony, in the tabernacle of meeting, Aaron shall be in charge of it from evening until morning before the Lord continually. It shall be a statute forever in your generations. He shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure gold lampstand before the Lord continually. Regarding the olive oil, which fueled the golden lampstand located just inside the tabernacle. God reiterates here three responsibilities. He first mentioned all the way back in Exodus 27. First, it was specifically the job, look at the text, of the children of Israel or the congregation to bring to the tent of meeting on these three mandatory festivals pure oil of pressed olives for the light so that the lamps there in the tabernacle would burn continually. Logically, the oil would be brought during the Feast of Tabernacles. Why? 
Well, that was the feast that followed the olive harvest in the fall. Because of its sanctified purpose, God deliberately stipulated here pure oil of pressed olives. While the olive oil served all different kinds of functions in, in the ancient world. Pure oil, or what we would call today virgin olive oil, was typically reserved for culinary purposes, cooking, food. The dirtier variety of later pressings would be reserved or, or designated, set aside for fuel just to be burned. When God commands, they bring to the priests pure oil of pressed olives to sustain the flames located on the lamps. God is wanting their best, not their leftovers. In the structure of how God is ordering things which is what Leviticus is about. It was incumbent on the congregation to provide the oil as a response to God's blessings so that the lampstand might burn brightly and continually. Without oil, there would be no fuel. And without fuel, there would be no light. Now, pertaining to the role of the priest, we can assume from our text that it was their job to steward such a large supply of oil that would come in every year, ensuring that it would last until the next harvest. Beyond that, our text states that it was the sole responsibility then of the high priest to use the oil that the congregation brought, that the priest steward, to maintain the lampstand. Again, look back at the text. God's clear. Aaron shall be in charge of the lamps on the pure golden lampstand, from evening until morning, or the, the customary Jewish day, before the Lord continually. Now located right outside the veil of testimony in the tabernacle, or the Holy of Holies, you had positioned this incredibly awesome piece of furniture. It was known as the golden menorah. According to Exodus 25, the menorah was actually one big lampstand that possessed on it seven individual lamps as the only source of light in the tabernacle all day every day it was the sole responsibility of the high priest to tend to the menorah ensuring that its light would burn brightly and the priest could could do their tasks do their jobs to accomplish this he would maintain the wicks ensure there was always an ample supply of oil fuel Aside from being the only source of light in the tabernacle, the other interesting thing, interesting detail about the menorah was the people never saw it. It was never seen publicly. Only the priest, only the high priest had access into that part of the tabernacle. Only they could see the thing. You see, it was the job of the congregation to provide the oil as a response to God's grace. But it also required trusting, right? A measure of faith. You see, they had to trust that the priest would steward the resources appropriately and that the high priest would use that oil accordingly because they never saw inside the, the tent. Biblically, there are all kinds of typological elements woven into these four verses. We, we don't even have time to scratch the surface. Oil in the Old Testament, symbolic of the Holy Spirit can even represent the nation of Israel. Jesus claimed to be what? The light of the world. And you and I commissioned to be vessels of that light. Jesus' affliction, if you recall, began in Gethsemane, 
or literally translated, the garden of the olive press. I'm sure there's some meaning and depth in that understanding. And the scriptures, the word of God, is referred to as a lamp unto our feet and a light unto our path. In an Old Testament context, the seven branches of the lampstand, the menorah, were believed to reflect the seven days of creation with the center light representing the Sabbath, the Sabbath day, that they were to keep holy. Their rest fueled the the work. In John's vision, recorded for us in Revelation chapter 1, these seven churches that Jesus would write seven letters to, located in Asia Minor, are literally described, again in John's Revelation Chapter 1, as being seven golden lampstands. Being tended to by whom? Well, a high priest named Jesus. Broadly speaking, as a church, Calvary 316 is called to be a lamp in which the light of God's revelation shines brightly into a darkened world. Don't you want that to be the church that you're a part of? The kind of place? That said, to accomplish that task, a partnership is required. The congregation provides pure oil. As a response to God's blessing, there's no mandate, there's no pressure, it's just a response, but they provide the congregation pure oil to the blessings of God. Fuel to power illumination. The pastor's job is to steward that resource accordingly appropriately, knowing that in the end, Jesus, the high priest, is responsible to tend to the lampstand and make sure we shine as brightly as we can. Think of it this way. The congregation provides, the pastor presides, Jesus performs the work. It's worth noting that there was no natural light in the tabernacle of meeting. It was designed that way. There was no windows, skylights. The menorah was it. That was the only light in the tabernacle. It was only a light that was fueled by the Holy Spirit, manifesting from the congregation's response to God's grace. That was the only power. This should remind us of something I believe the modern church has largely forgotten. You know, the Spirit of God never flows into this world through natural methods, natural innovations, natural strategies. No, 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 no. The Holy Spirit flows only through men and women in whom He already dwells. That's the source of power. And this picture that we have presented for us in Leviticus 24, it is the congregation, you, filled with the oil of the Holy Spirit that fuels and powers the work of God. In this place, it's simply a truth. The illuminance of a church or how effect, how effectively that lampstand shines into the world directly depends. It's in proportion to the exuberance of the congregation. Illuminance is tied to exuberance. You see, your energy, your excitement for the things of God. Your zeal, enthusiasm for His Word. Your compassion, heart for the lost. Dedication and commitment to pray and tell others about Jesus. All of these things, by the way, 
manifesting purely as a reciprocation of God's grace, infused with His Spirit, that, my friend, is what fuels a church. What fuels our church. You know, there's a big difference between church activities and church action. Sadly, one ends up being a crutch to compensate for the other. There are churches that you observe, and there's lots of motion with little movement. At Calvary 316, and I'll speak for the elders as well, you know, we're intentionally less focused on church activities designed to fill your social calendar, and we're more about promoting, equipping, and sending out an active church into the world to shine the light we've all been given. In fact, the only way our church is structured to grow numerically is when you, the congregation, get so excited about what God is doing here, your enthusiasm bubbles over to others. You infect others, and they want to come check out what you're a part of. Years ago, famed preacher Charles Spurgeon, he once said concerning his church that great preachers don't make great congregations. Great congregations make great preachers. And to that I say amen, it's a truth. In fact, the work that Charles Spurgeon was a part of at the tabernacle many, many years ago, their sanctuary held 6,000, which was unheard of in that day and age. And a delegation of pastors from America, as the story's told, go to England to observe how in the world this work was, was, was functioning, how it was being accomplished, just the practicalities of it. They showed up after a service, and, they, and they're looking around, and, and there's this layman, heavy-set fellow with suspenders, comes up and asks what they're doing. They're like, well, we're, you know, we're just amazed at what's happening here and, and what God's doing. And uh, before the third service later this afternoon, we, we just wanted to see if we could find someone that could take us down and show us how in the world you hate this place. They wanted to see the broil room. So the man said, oh, that's great. You come on down. They go down this winding set of stairs. They get to this room, and, and he opens it up, and there in the broil room was 150 men on their knees praying for the next service. And he turned to the men, and he says, that's what powers the church. That's the heat. That's the fuel. Well, lo and behold, the man walked away, and they come up to attend the service, and the layman, as they would have thought, comes out on stage with Charles Spurgeon. The fuel, the oil. God designs these things where he wants the lamp to burn brightly. But there's a, a, a responsibility, a partnership. You provide the energy. The pastors and the elders, the leadership, they steward those things. But it's Jesus' job to ultimately tend to the lampstand and accomplish the work he wants to. The holy oil signifies the power for illumination, which results when you respond to God's grace. But now we'll see that the holy bread illustrates the provision that enables the work to continue. Let's pick things back up at verse 5. God continuing, And you shall take fine flour and bake twelve cakes with it. This would represent the twelve tribes of Israel. Two-tenths of an ephah shall be in each cake. You shall set them in two rows, six in a row. So they would be double-stacked on the pure gold table before the Lord. Exodus 25 records the detailed instructions for the construction Instructions for the construction of what was known as the table of showbread, which is being referenced here. Continuing, the Lord says you shall put 
uh, pure frankincense on each row. It shall be on the bread for a memorial, an offering made by fire to the Lord. Every Sabbath, he shall set it in order before the Lord continually. So on the Sabbath, the priest would replace the bread with new 12, 12 new fresh loaves being taken from the children of Israel, speaking of the flour, by an everlasting covenant, it shall be for Aaron and his sons, and they shall eat it in a holy place, for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire, by a perpetual statute. Uh, notice back in verse 8, that the fine flour, which would be used to make these 12 cakes, to be displayed in the tabernacle upon the sh table of showbread, were to be what? Taken from the children of Israel. You see, just like the pure oil, it was incumbent on the congregation of Israel when they came to celebrate the Feast of Passover, not Passover, but Pentecost, the Feast of Weeks. They were to bring, after the wheat harvest, fine flour as an offering, supplying the work, the ministry. Once given, like with the oil, it was the job of the priest to take the flour, bake the cakes, place them accordingly. The priests were charged with using the resources that were provided. Not only was their generosity essential concerning the showbread, but it provided, according to the text, food for the priests. Understand, the entire concept here for how these things were to work was rather straightforward, like not overly complicated. In order to enable the priests the necessary time and energy to effectively tend to this tent of meeting, as well as practically serve the people in this ordained capacity as priests. And their jobs, their responsibilities were many. God structured the order so that the priest's practical needs were met through the provisions provided by the larger congregation. That's the structure here. Now what's powerful, profound, about the picture is that the flour that was provided, this fine flour provided by the people as a response to God's blessings, this offering presented to bless the Most High, a gift response. Notice that it was God who shared it with the priest. Do you, do you notice that? You came and you gave an offering to the Lord, fine flour. And then God, after, you know, they were baked these bread and presented on the showbread. It was God that was like, hey, when we're done, we change it over. You guys enjoy it. Speaking of the priesthood. He says, it shall be the flour for Aaron and his sons. They shall eat it in a holy place for it is most holy to him from the offerings of the Lord made by fire. Now, let me carry this forth with just a real practical example. You do not give of your financial resources. Now, now Okay, Zach, we were just talking about flour. How are we connecting that to money? Well, in the ancient culture, this was literally the first fruits of their labor. This is what they lived on. This is what they, uh, they exchanged back and forth. You know, show me the bread. This is literally where it comes. Like, the bread was their monetary expense. So giving of the first fruits, giving of the fine flour, in that ancient context, it was monetary. Understand, you don't give of your financial resources in order to support me and my family. Please understand that. That is not the motivation or the intent. You give to the Lord as you're able 
and response to his blessings. You make, understand this, an offering to the Lord. I can't say that enough. That's what the text says. And yet, the reason a pastor is then allowed to live off of your financial gift to God is because God decided to share that financial gift with him. That's the structure. Like God set things up so that the minister could live off of your offering to him. Well, I don't like that. Well, your problem isn't with me. Your problem is with God. And furthermore, if you're giving to God, now dictating to God what he should do with your gift, do you understand giving at all? Because it's a response to God's grace. So what God wants to do with it is up to him. Now, caveat, in no way, shape, or form ever did God structure this to enrich the priesthood. Heaven forbid. No, 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 no. The idea is that the gift, the offering, what God then shared with the minister, was to provide for the minister's practical needs. His bread to eat. In order for Calvary 316 to be a ministry that Jesus can use in our world, two things are needed from the congregation. Power, yielded from the holy oil for illumination, and the provision of holy bread for the continuation of the ministry. Understand, Jesus does the work. And it's the job of the pastors to steward the flour and the oil. But it's your job to provide both the energy and the resources. You know, one of the sad realities of Jewish history <laughs> is how they actually fail to obey most of the things we've been discussing for the last like six months. Like these things in Leviticus, I mean, they just blew it over and over and over and over again. They didn't obey the Sabbath. I mean, good grief. God's like, you could take a day off. And they're like, no, 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 no. We want to work. You could take a year off. No, 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 no. We're going to work. Hey, I got this 50th year thing. You can clean off all debt. No, 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 no. I really like keeping my debt. Like they didn't obey the Sabbath. They didn't even celebrate the feast continually. And then following their return from Babylon, Babylon, Babylonian captivity, their exile, they neglect to give provisions to support the priests and the work of God. They refused to give oil. They didn't give the bread. The temple lay in ruin, and God had a problem with it. Let me read for you just two quick passages from this time period. You can take them as you will. In Haggai chapter 1, the word of the Lord came to Haggai the prophet saying, is it time for you yourselves to dwell in your paneled houses while this temple lies in ruin? Consider your ways. You have so much, but you bring in little. You eat, but don't have enough. You drink, but you're not filled. You clothe yourself, but no one is warm. He who earns wages, earns wages to put them into bags with holes. Consider your ways. Go up to the mountain and bring wood and build the temple that I may take pleasure in it and be glorified. You look for much, but indeed it came to little. And when you brought it home, I blew it away. Why? Because my house is in ruins, while every one of you runs his own house. Therefore the heavens above you withhold the dew, and the earth withholds its fruit. For I called for a drought on the land and the mountains and on the grain and the new wine and the oil, on whatever brings forth from the ground, on men and livestock, and on all the labor of your hands. There was a 
a heart condition here. In Malachi 3, God says, Well, a man robbed God, yet you have robbed me. But you say, what way have we robbed you? God's words, in tithes and offerings. You are cursed with a curse, for you have robbed me. Even this whole nation. For the remedy? Bring all the tithes into the storehouse, that there may be food in my house. And try me now in this. It's the only time in the Bible God actually says, try me on something. Test me. He continues, if I will not open up for you the windows of heaven and pour out for you such blessings that there will not be room enough to receive it. Christian, when you respond to God's grace, three things result in a church. There is oil for illumination, power for the ministry, bread for continuation, provisions for the ministry. And lastly, we're about to see that there's an obedience for conservation or a purity in the ministry. We're going to get to a really strange story here. Follow me, verse 10. Now the son of an Israelite woman, whose father was an Egyptian, went out among the children of Israel. So this man was half Jewish and he was half Egyptian. And this Israelite woman's son and a man of Israel fought each other in the camp. So there was kind of a mixed martial arts battle there going fisticuffs. And the Israelite woman's in, in, the, in the process of this fight, he blasphemed the name of the Lord and cursed. Now, now in the Hebrew, this word blaspheme means to pierce, to strike through. This word cursed implies that whatever he said, his actions brought dishonor and contempt upon the name of the Lord. And so they brought him to Moses, and then we get this little kind of caveat that his mother's name was Shelemeth, the daughter of Debri, of the tribe of Dan. So we're given her name. By the way, her name means peace, and I think it, it just kind of showed that her son wasn't really reflecting her by fighting. Well, they put this man in custody, or literally a place of confinement. They guard him, that the mind of the Lord might be shown to them. Now, in, in Scripture, names are very important. And the name of God is no exception. Names were more than just a way to identify a person, to identify someone. Names were given to speak of a person's character, their personhood. You see, to blaspheme or curse the name of the Lord was such a serious offense because this person was undermining and challenging the very nature and personhood of God. Like right from the jump, these guys are going at it. This guy, in a, in a moment of, of anger, he says something. We don't know what it is. It's a curse. It's a blasphemy. Right in the middle of this fight, and everyone pauses because they recognize what was just said. Well, that's serious. Don't know what to do about it, but that's a problem. Like, keep in mind, the nation of Israel has only existed for a few months. And nothing like this has ever happened before. Even Moses, as we see in the text, isn't really sure what to do. Why? Because God actually hadn't provided instructions or established clear consequences for this crime of blasphemy. Taking the Lord's name in vain is a totally different thing. We've talked about that before. Blasphemy hadn't been, hadn't been ruled on. So they placed the man under guard, and Moses waits for the Lord. We don't know what to do, God. So you need to provide us some instruction on the situation. So the Lord speaks to Moses, verse 13. And he says, take outside the camp him who is cursed. Then let all who hear him, who heard him, lay their hands on his head 
and let all the congregation stone him. <laughs> then you shall speak to the children of Israel, saying, Whoever curses his God shall bear his sin. Whoever blasphemes the name of the Lord shall surely be put to death. All of the congregation shall, shall certainly stone him, the stranger as well as him who was born in the land. When he blasphemes the name of the Lord, he shall be put to death. God's ruling. Again, this is God's ruling, not mine. Blasphemy was to be a capital crime in Israel. One that was equally to be applied to both the native born who knew better and even the stranger who might not have known better, but this was that serious. In the formation of this culture, God here is establishing a zero tolerance policy to such an act. And the land of God, and as the people of God, this attitude, whatever it is, that would drive a person to blaspheme the name. A name, by the way, that they didn't say. In our text, it's just the name. You'll notice, of the Lord is in italicized, meaning it's not in the text. Just the name. They wouldn't write it, yet alone speak it, yet alone blaspheme it. Such an attitude was not to be allowed. In our situation, the man's actions was taken outside the camp. Everyone who heard him. So those who are, are testifying to the accuracy of what took place, they lay their hands on him. And at that point, the congregation, again, we're back to the congregation, right? The congregation of Israel stones the man to death in accordance with God's instructions. Now, what I find particularly interesting about this passage is the serious lengths the people were to go to ensure the name of God was held in this exalted place societally. I mean, to blaspheme the name was a death sentence. Now, what makes that interesting to me is another passage in Scripture, specifically Psalms 138, verse 2. And the reason that that's interesting is so the name of God was to be held in such reverence that to blaspheme the name of God was to encounter death. And yet, in Psalms 138, we're told that God, the Lord, has magnified His Word above His name. My friend, your Bible contains the eternal words of life. To dishonor it, or to attempt to strike through it, all it results in will be your eternal death death God exalts his word above his name this isn't in the notes uh, so I had just gotten done with my Bible study pretty amped up on this and so uh, I got in bed Jess and I are watching some TV we hear the boys upstairs fighting and uh, I've got an eight-year-old and a five-year-old and, and they fight about everything and, and apparently they decided they were going to fight about uh, who got to hold the Bible as they were reading it that night. Uh, again, we fight about everything. So who's holding the Bible? And all of a sudden, I hear yelling and screaming, and they come downstairs, and, 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 and they're yelling at each other. And I'm like, whoa, 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 whoa what's going on? And, um, and Theo was like, Quincy ripped the Bible. They tore it. And I said, whoa, 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 guys. The Bible says that he exalts his word even above his name. And in the Old Testament, we'd have to stone you to death for this. 
They looked at me. Quincy started crying and ran upstairs. And Jessica was like, way to go. How are you going to fix that one? And I'm like, son of a gun. So I go upstairs. It was just a prayer book they had read. So I was out. I was like, guys, you're fine. You didn't rip the Bible at all. See, the Bible's still intact. This was just an old prayer book. No big deal. You can tear those up all the time. We treat God's word with respect at the Adam's house. Following this ruling about blasphemy, God does something here really, I, I find to be very curious. Let's just kind of read through it. Let's work through it. Verse 17, immediately following us, whoever kills any man shall surely be put to death. Now, now this is not the introduction of any new concept in Scripture. As a matter of fact, the, the idea of the punishment for murder being capital, capital is actually found all the way back in Genesis chapter 9 and, and God's instructions to Noah. He says, surely for, life, for your lifeblood I will demand a reckoning. From the hand of every beast I will require it. From the hand of man, from the hand of every man's brother, I will require the life of the man. Whoever sheds man's blood by man's blood that it shall be shed for in the image of God he made man the fundamental purpose you should note in regards to the capital punishment for murder is not even just the deterrence of of behavior that's an unintended consequence or a result but the idea according to Genesis 9 the, the seriousness is to preserve the the sacred nature of life itself because you were created in the image and likeness of God so is this not a crime just against a man this is a crime against God which is why God took it with such a, a seriousness. Verse 18, continuing, whoever kills an animal shall make good. Animal for animal. So this, this equal restitution for the loss of property. This has been addressed earlier in Leviticus. If a man causes disfigurement of his neighbor, as he has done, so it shall be done to him. Fracture for fracture, eye for eye, tooth for tooth. As he has caused disfigurement of a man, so it shall be done to him. And whoever kills an animal shall restore it. Whoever kills a man shall be put to death. You shall have the same law for the stranger and for one of your own country, for I am the Lord your God. So Moses spoke to the children of Israel. They took outside the camp him who had cursed. They stoned him with stones. So the children of Israel did as the Lord commanded Moses. Now, let, let me make a few broad points about these verses before getting to the main point. A few broad points. We'll get to the main point in a moment. First and foremost, this idea behind an eye for an eye or a tooth for a tooth. It existed, interestingly enough, to ensure equal justice and prohibit unchecked vengeance or revenge. You know, human beings, you know, we, we rarely react in proportion to an offense. Meaning that these instructions were designed to restrain natural vengeance and uphold a fair adjudication. Gandhi famously said, an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind. You've heard that. That sounds nice. The problem, though, with this perspective is it doesn't take into account the depravity of sin nature. You see, without equitable justice under the law, providing fairness and upholding a sense of societal order to deter criminality, this an eye for an eye leaves the whole world blind nonsense actually ends up being a world where the good guys are blind and the bad guys can see. Because that's sin. That's how it works. 
Aside from determent, this eye for an eye, tooth for a tooth idea, it's an even-handed approach to justice, ensuring two things I find interesting. One, no sentence would be too lenient, which would be an undercarriage of justice, but it also ensured that there wouldn't be a, a disproportionality to a sentence or a miscarriage of justice. So this whole thing was like, when you get hit, you want to hit on one side and the other. Ba-bam, ba-bam. I got hit, I'm going to do a little bit more, because that's our reaction. And God's like, whoa, 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 this is not about revenge. It's an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. This is, this is the concept. Now, in this chapter that addresses congregational responsibilities, oil, bread, we find here another appropriate response to the goodness and the blessings of God. And you might be thinking, how are we going to get there from there? This is how. When God's word condemns the actions of someone in the camp, it was, according to God's structure, the congregation's responsibility to deal with it. It was the congregation. Whether it was blasphemy, murder, causing a person harm, destroying property, God's word established a clear verdict, leaving the enforcement to the people. Like, understand our willingness to obey God's word, to take God's word seriously and then apply it. It conserves the integrity of the congregation itself. As a response to God's grace, obedience maintains purity within a ministry. Like Moses in a church, the pastor's responsibility, chief and foremost, is to articulate God's word, what God's word has to say. And then it's at that point, it's left to the congregation as to what follows. See, understand when a person holds fast and obeys God's word, a purity manifests. And what results? The name of God is exalted. The light burns brightly. Christian, when you respond to God's grace, three things results in a church. There's oil for illumination, power for the ministry, bread for continuation, provisions for the ministry, and an obedience for conservation or purity in the ministry. Ironically, when one, two, or all three of these things are missing, it tends to be a good indication that congregation doesn't really know God's grace. Because God's grace is what produces all of these things within a congregation. Power. Provision. And a purity because we take God's word seriously. In closing, I want to add an additional wrinkle to this third part of an odd chapter. Because I think God is doing something, and you've got to follow me here, really cosmic in these verses that, that you might not see initially. During his Sermon on the Mount, where he discusses the kingdom of God, Jesus famously says in Matthew 5, verses 38 and 39, he says, you've heard it said, an eye for an eye and a tooth for a tooth. So Jesus is referencing back here. He says, but I tell you not to resist an evil person. But whoever slaps you on your right cheek, turn the other to him also. In his commentary on this section of Matthew 5, David Guzik writes, quote, when a person insults us or slaps you on the right cheek, 
We want to give back what they gave to us plus more. Jesus said we should patiently bear such insults and offensive and not resist an evil person who insults us this way. Instead, David Guzik writes, we trust God to defend us. So that's what Jesus is really getting at. You've heard it said, an eye for an eye, a tooth for a tooth. I say, chill out, let God deal with it. That's what Jesus is kind of getting at here, which is interesting. As I mold over this passage, dealing with the death penalty of stoning tied directly to blasphemy, something, something dawned on me. You know the only other example we have in the entire Bible of this law we just read being put into practice? There's only one other place we have a story about it, a story that includes it. Acts chapter 7. Now, a little context, a, a guy named Stephen, filled with the Holy Spirit, preaches this amazing sermon, proclaiming Jesus to a group of very angry Jews. Let me read you a section of Scripture. We're told that when these Jews heard the things that Stephen was saying about Jesus, they're cut to the heart, but they gnashed their teeth at him. They're angry. But Stephen, full of the Holy Spirit, gazed into heaven, and he saw the glory of God, and he saw Jesus standing at the right hand of the Father. And as they cried out with a loud voice, stopping their ears, they ran at him with one accord. So they drove their Honda right at him. And they took him, and they cast him out of the city, and they stoned him. Now why? For blasphemy. And as they were doing this, the witnesses, they laid down their clothes at the feet of a young man named Saul. And they stoned Stephen as he's calling on the name of the Lord, saying, Lord Jesus, receive my spirit. And Stephen, we read, knelt down, and he cried out with a loud voice, Lord, do not charge them with this sin. And when he had said this, he fell asleep, or he passed. Now, in my, in my studies of Leviticus 24, this passage, I couldn't find anyone that presented for me a rational explanation as to why immediately following God's verdict for the congregation to stone a blasphemer, blasphemer he then transitions in verse 17 to a repeating of a law already on the books that whoever kills a man shall be put to death. No one provides an explanation. It's just this thing was just, I had a curiosity I needed to scratch. Now, going back to Guzik's observation, that Jesus' exhortation to turn the other cheek centered on the fact that we're to trust what? That God will ultimately defend us. <laughs> Something interesting occurred to me. Could it be, here's a theory, that placing this stipulation about murdering the innocent man into the law, following these procedures for stoning the blasphemer, was done to condemn the very men who had just unjustly stoned Stephen for blasphemy, which he didn't commit. Like, like furthermore, could it be that when Stephen cries out, Lord, do not charge them with this sin, that Stephen was actually considering Leviticus 24, verse 17. And could it be that this young man named Saul, who instigated Stephen's stoning, later realized the very condemnation he was now under when he encountered Jesus for himself on the road to Damascus? 
You see, Paul was a man that took pride in the reality he had never transgressed the law. But when he encountered Jesus, Paul knew there was one law. See, Leviticus 24 said otherwise. Like what a moment it must have been for this man to experience Jesus. And the fact that Jesus, when he knocked him off the donkey, didn't then proceed to stone him to death according to Leviticus 24. But Jesus turned the other cheek and showed him grace and saved him from the wages of his own sin. Blasphemy was a death sentence. Applied inappropriately, you are now guilty of murder. Could it be that this passage solely exists for the application of Stephen and what it would do in the life of the Apostle Paul? Because he knew what did he deserve? Death. Because he had stoned an innocent man for blasphemy. Grace. Grace changes everything. How we obey God's word and the purity that results. The light that shines. It's all on Jesus. He's the high priest. But our responsibilities are to bring our oil and bread to the Lord. Say, God, take these things. You use them. You multiply them. You make something radical happen in us. So, Father, Lord, we thank you for your word.